The anarchy had raged for over a decade. Across England, adulterine castles, which is the name given to those built without permission of any king, had proliferated as nobles and barons across northern England and the Welsh borders had taken advantage of there being no centralised authority and used this to impose their will upon the local peoples. There was a general feeling of chaos and of a nation mad in a deep miasma of endless attrition and the failure of the rule of law. In 1148, Stephen of Bois was about 52 years old. He had held the throne of England now for 13 years, a true anointed king of the realm, and yet for the past decade he'd been at war, fighting off the claim upon his throne from his cousins, Matilda and Robert of Gloucester. Yet Robert had passed, and Matilda had returned to France, and there was hope for an end to the seemingly endless cycle of siege and violence that had been endemic over the last decade. In this, the weary king had some blessings, a few clear benedictions upon his reign. One was London. The city, the largest in England, her 40,000 or so souls crammed behind her old but still hale walls, had not suffered during the decade before. It had almost surrendered at one point and had resisted and remained strong. Its wealth, built upon extensive trade, had brought the king many revenues, and the stalwart militancy of its men had been talismatic in battle, bringing victories in the countless small skirmishes. The second blessing the king had was his son and heir. Prince Eustace was by now 18 years old. From the scattered accounts we have of the heir's personality, he comes across as a young man tempered by war. He was polite and courteous, but if required, he would be commanding and curt. Orders given were to be obeyed, and in warfare, he was harsh and decisive. This was to be the next king of England. Yet upon King Stephen also came vexations and afflictions that burdened his reign. Most importantly, his realm was broken. A decade of siege and counter-siege of adultering castles and a noble class, now armed with these additional classes, able to pursue agendas of greed, raid and vendetta, England as a polity was strong in name only, and in practicality was weak and broken. King Stephen had a mountain to climb if he was to return England to stability, and even worse, the Duchy of Normandy, politically part and parcel of the kingdom for 82 years, was in the hands of Matilda's husband, Geoffrey of Anjou. But the most ominous thorn in his side, the greatest affliction upon his reign, was the figure of a teenage boy, Henry of Anjou, Matilda and Geoffrey's eldest son. He was about 15 or 16 years of age, and now he sought to try his luck, to gain the throne he felt his mother deserved. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of The Story of London, an ongoing podcast series about the chronicle of this mighty metropolis, following its tale from the perspective of the residents of London themselves. This episode sees us reach the final part of the anarchy, and will see us witness the story of the 
oligarchs of the city coping with its end, its new Italian bishop, the charismatic figure of Rahiri, Saint Benedict, the coolest guy in Christendom, and more, as events in England take a dramatic and surprising twist. Welcome then to chapter 66 of the story of London, The Child of Anarchy. We start with the young man whose tale was to become intertwined with the city deeply over the next few decades, Henry of Angel. He was, for want of a better description, a child of the anarchy. When he was only nine years old, his father had sent him off with his uncle and knights to aid his mother's campaign. Such a brutal introduction to the adult world. This young man, whatever his conditions of home and hearth and upbringing had been, had seen the civil war up close at this most impressionable age. Not only had he been baptised with the sights of battle, of men serving him willingly in the commitment of acts of violence, not only with the sounds and smells of siege, what would have been impressed upon him also was of being legitimate heir, the scion of the long dynasty of rulers of this land. In his veins flowed the blood of both William, conqueror, the man who had snatched his land from the usurper Godwinson, and also there flowed the line of kings from before, the legacy of mythic half-remembered names like Ethelred, Ironsides and Elfred. These things had clearly made an indelible impression. How can this narrator justify such a claim? Consider, after his excursion as a child of nine to this land, this boy's actions over the next few years. After his sojourn in 1142, he had returned a few years later with knights for another immersion into the carnage, and again in 1147. This time he'd learned the harsh lessons of practicalities and logistics, He'd arrived with a contingent of mercenary forces, all the better to supplement his claim, yet he had been unable to maintain the funds required for his cell swords, and so they had left, leaving him, I imagine, very frustrated. As he had sailed over, rumours had multiplied in England that young Henry was bringing with him a large army, whose size would change the war in favour of those who opposed the king in London. It was when they saw the paltry size of the young man's forces that aside from a few knights, interest in his campaign had waned. Thus, in 1149, the young pretender sailed again, crossing now a year after his mother had returned to her lands in France, when all seemed lost for the cause he wished for. He did not invade England with a large force, but rather seemed set to enter the heart of darkness of the nation, the fractious and rebellious north, and there, far from the reach of that king in London, Young Henry of Anjou made his way further north to the island's other king, David of Scotland. Henry sought his uncle's aid, and King David was willing to give it, having never supported Stephen's rule. The Scottish king bestowed upon young Henry a most special blessing, for it was in Scotland that the young prince was formally knighted at the hands of the Scottish monarch. 
A new campaign was conceived, a triple alliance. Henry would join with David of Scotland, and they would join forces with Ranulf, the Earl of Chester, and march upon York, the capital of the Norse, seeking to claim that blood-soaked city for themselves. But in this act, it is clear Stephen had his own agency and knew of their plans. The king marched north with a large force, and his new triple alliance scattered before him, refusing to give battle against such a large number. Stephen had gained the upper hand again. His enemies had hurt his reign, crippled it even, but each time this had happened, Stephen had regrouped, restored himself, and regained the initiative. In 1149, he did indeed seem again to hold the upper hand, and yet for all his successes, there was a small, fatal flaw in Stephen's armour, a weakness, possibly as small as Achilles' ancient nemesis, but just as fatal, because for all of this campaign, for all of this low-intensity war, Stephen had been forced to commit his forces, his attention and his resources upon the control of England and England alone. And Normandy had been lost to him. And while today we would see that as a small footnote, understand Normandy was weighted heavier than the rest of England at this time. Its geopolitical significance was disproportionate to its location or its size. Ever since the conqueror had sailed from its shores to invade England, Normandy had been always the beating heart of the realm. It had remained a centre of gravity more important than the border with cold Scotland to the north. How had this been so? Well, as I'd mentioned in previous chapters, the truth was... William I had not just brought himself to England. He had brought a new class of lords, the Norman aristocracy, the men who ruled it with fist and stone. And they were just that, Normans. Very few existed in England that had not also estate and land south of the water. And this truth had long played a profound role over the last century in all the politics of this realm. Consider what we'd seen and the episodes that the story of London has discussed previous. William II, Rufus as he was now known, had seen the most serious threat to his reign caused by his uncle, Bishop Odo of Bayer, who had led almost the entire nobility of England against him because William had held England and his brother Robert had held Normandy. For men with feet either side of the channel in terms of property and loyalty, they did not like having two masters, a duke and a king. Rufus had waged war upon his brother, who had conceded and went off on that first crusade. But upon his return and the death of Rufus, both he and his baby brother Henry had waged war for England and Normandy. And it was Robert who lost and ended his life imprisoned, and duchy and kingdom were restored together. And yet... The whole point of the anarchy was the two were now cleaved apart. And simply put, for as long as he did not hold Normandy, Stephen would never know peace. There would always be nobles, powerful and rich men, who would never stand for crown and duchy to be divided. For as long as this division existed, whoever held the duchy was always even if not directly upon the line of succession, a claimant for the throne. And in this, 
there could be no division of land. On paper, it seems that events had actually created a perfect resolution to the endless wars and besiegements of the last decade. Normandy would become home and the basis of the Angevin dynasty, and England would become the home and the basis of the Blessivin dynasty, and that would be all. But around both these ruling families were men who held land in both, and who wished for duchy and crown to unite under one name. And thus the war continued. By the end of 1149 and 1150, the prospects of peace upon this land seemed frozen. And by dint of irony or act of God, such a frost was also felt, literally, by the residents of London. One of the most ferocious frosts ever experienced by its residents fell upon the city, with reports that the temperature fell below zero on December the 10th, 1149, and did not rise above it again until the 19th day of February, 1150. So great was this cold, so much did the temperature plunge, that this serious winter, which some have claimed to have happened over 1150 and 51, I should say, but I favour the year before, well, it is now that we read of the first ever truly recognisable time that the mighty Thames froze over, that the ice upon the water was so thick that men could travel across from the docks of Bishopsgate to Southwark on both foot and horseback. And we know the ice went as far as least as London Bridge. The descriptions tell us that at the height of it, so thick was this ice that it supported loaded wagons being driven across it, and London was briefly landlocked by frozen waters. As this winter ended, we can imagine the relief for those who emerged from such times as they counted the heavy cost upon men and women to survive such an experience. Is it any surprise then that the following September, Robert D. Sigello, Bishop of London, died, and London was again without a bishop? It wasn't the only loss for London of leading church figures. Rahiri, the courtier-turned-visionary, whose leadership had given the city the church of St. Bartholomew the Great, the great St. Bartholomew's Fair, and who had rededicated and refocused the church of the Holy Sepulchre, London, and founded St. Bart's Hospital, had passed a few years earlier, and the loss of such an ecstatic and charismatic figure seems to have been profoundly felt. There are many tales about Rahiri that remain to this day. I've simply described him as a former courtier of King Richard II. Some sources insist he was a priest before he entered the king's service. Many others say he was King William II's fool. There exist persistent rumours that even after he had created his grand visionary church, he would wander the growing streets of the Smithfield region, which again one source I read said had become filled with people moving closer to be near this church of miracles. And here Rahiri would entertain children and poor people with sleight-of-hand tricks and other amusing skills from his days as a jester. I do not say these things did not happen, but rather think they suggest the type of folklore-type mythos that arise around a particularly beloved figure, especially ones who seems different from the rest of the men in power in the community. London, as we have said, and as we will see again and again, was run by oligarchs and built upon cronyism and nepotism. 
for the vast numbers of regular souls without the funds required to be able to access power and with it the greater sense of agency that one is granted when you have such things, Rahiri became an ideal man of the people and after his death a multitude of homespun and popular stories began to be told about him including the tales of old Rahiri performing tricks to entertain the children of Smithfield and later tales of someone disturbing his grave and removing the bones in his left foot, and how his shade supposedly haunts St. Bartholomew's the Great to this day, a ghost seen limping around and seeking its missing bones. Rahiri's veneration and the popularity of the folk stories about him, to me, however, they are, I feel, indicative of the start of a new longing within London. With the nation spiralling out of control, with the rule of law elsewhere being shaken so badly, and with London appearing to be a firm bastion of stability, it would be obvious to conclude that everyone there would be content with the way things were. And yet, as we have seen, the principal office of London, the sheriffs, were not law enforcers. They were tax collectors. Their main civic duty, principal above all others, was the collection of monies and tithes of everyone. Aldermen represented ways for the communities to express themselves, but as we saw back in chapter 56 with the issue of wild packs of dogs running rampant on the streets, sometimes such issues took years to be addressed and dealt with. No, there is a sense here that for the vast majority of the men and women of London, there was a feeling of helplessness. A sense of helplessness no doubt also felt by any peasant found anywhere in war-ravaged England right now, where they were just as helpless in the face of powerful men with swords and armour who were safe behind their castle walls. But in London, this situation was different. The dispossessed had neighbours. Lots of neighbours. They could see the conditions they lived in. They could feel their lack of voice. Now, at this point, I do not suggest that anyone should begin to consider London as some early socialist fever dream where the lumpen proletariat begin to gain political awareness due to their exploitation from the oligarchical class. We're more than a few hundred years before we can allow such models be imposed upon any body of people. But I do think we see with Rahiri, and not just the folk tales that emerged after his death, but also in the explosive impact he had upon the city, the seeds of something. Remember, Rahiri had succeeded in building one of London's most powerful religious centres in only a few years, an institution built without the powerful financial and logistical support of the main religious orders. This is unique at the time. There were no Cistercians, Kuliaks or Benedictines around him. The city and the people themselves seemed to have invested their passion and energy into St. Bart's. And immediately afterwards, the ecstatic explosion in miracles, the crowds of Londoners who would watch with fevered expectation the services for there to be more miracles. For me, this shows not just a continuance of the great religious passion Londoners had manifest for centuries now, arguably since before the charismatic Wolf Bishop Wolfston had proclaimed his barnstorming sermons in the city, all the way back in chapter 21. But this was the first spark of a new flame of passion, 
Here we see the seeds of a desire for agency, a need for an expression of voice from people who had no such voice. Here I think we see the rekindling of the emotions that had been born long ago. In the darkness of the era I described around chapter 17, with the brutal fury of the Peace Guild, here, I believe most earnestly, we are seeing the warning of the future London mob, the city's most terrible face. It would not be long in coming, but such things do not happen overnight. They build slowly, quietly, gathering energy before they explode in the years to come. I believe in the veneration of Rahiri and the passion of religious fervor. You're seeing it start. There was a gap right now in the appointment of a new Bishop of London, and that was most likely due to a sudden and dramatic deterioration in the relationships between King Stephen and the papacy. I do not have time to fully explain this little slice of the ongoing drama of the realm, so I will offer this short summary in the hope that it will suffice and crave indulgence again for my adulterous desire to focus on all things London. You must understand, within the church circles across Europe, a great wave of change had swept ecclesiastical corridors, as more within the church had demanded increased autonomy from any royal authority. You saw this manifested in the rise of the new sexy group of monks, the Cistercians, over the previous generation's cool monks, the Kulniaks. Back in 1140, when the Archbishop of York died, this movement within the church ran into the king head-on. Stephen and his brother, Bishop Henry of Winchester, sought to appoint their nephew, William, to the Archbishopric of York, a bunch of reformers backed by none other then Bernard of Clairvaux had opposed this move. But the king and his brother had won, and their nephew William had become Archbishop of York in 1141, mostly because Bishop Henry was papal legate at the time, and he could just speed such things along. Saint Bernard resented the living heck out of this, and when the rather under his thumb Pope Eugene III took power, and I light-heartedly covered that relationship last episode, Bernard had Eugene reject the appointment and got someone else put in as Archbishop of York. King Stephen was furious over this, mostly because it would set a precedent about who appointed his archbishops, and so King Stephen simply refused to allow the new Archbishop of York into England. This was awkward. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who I mentioned last episode, a man called Theobald, set off to Rome to ask for advice on how to deal with this. Stephen had asked him not to go, but Theobald had gone anyway, so now the king refused to allow him back into the country as well. So now both archbishops of England were refused entry to England. This is getting increasingly awkward. Stephen also seized much of the land of Theobald and then cut his personal patronage of those stupid sexy Cistercians and started showing the love to those now neglected Kulniaks. 
Stephen probably could have been able to play hardball with the papacy and his archbishops, except he needed them badly. Stephen wanted to do something, and without the help of the archbishops and their boss, the Pope, it could not happen. You see, Stephen wanted to crown his son, Prince Eustace. With young Henry of Argent running around claiming to be heir to the throne, his mother had failed to even be crowned upon, Stephen wanted to end that claim straight away. But to do that, he needed to do something they did in France, which is give Eustace a coronation before Stephen died. It was a fine French tradition. Anointed kings were special. They were ordained by God, put in place by God. By anointing Eustace, Stephen would place a lock on the succession and that should symbolically be that. However, in England, this tradition had never been done before. So Stephen needed permission from the papacy to do it. And given the relationship with the papacy right now, that wasn't going to happen. And as such, because he needed Archbishop Theobald of Canterbury so badly, Stephen came to a deal with Theobald and allowed him back into England. Theobald was then appointed a papal legate in 1151, which increased his authority even more, and made him a counter to Henry the Bishop of Winchester. And then Theobald got finally around to appointing vacant bishop positions, and London, after a couple of years, finally got a new bishop. However, relations with the church took a sour turn after this, in Easter, 1152, at a gathering of his loyal nobles, King Stephen had ordered them to swear fealty to Prince Eustace and then demanded that Archbishop Theobald and the bishops anoint the young man king in waiting there and then. Theobald refused point-blank, and the king and his heir imprisoned the bishops and refused to release them unless they agreed. The Archbishop of Canterbury managed to escape and went into exile over in Flanders. This was not a good look for the king and his regime. But be that as it may, in, in May 1152, London, after a gap of a few years, finally had a new bishop. And it was a name the city knew well, Richard D. Belmius. And no, dear regular listener, you do not suffer from déjà vu, because back between 1108 and 1127, London's bishop had indeed been called Richard de Belmius. This new bishop was Bishop Richard de Belmius II, and he was a nephew of his namesake. This new Bishop de Belmius was the scion of a London-based family, whose lineage spoke of two unarguable truths. The first, that that great weeping of priests at the threat of enforcement upon the ban of marriage and the begatting of children, which I covered all the way back in chapter 57, it seems to have worked, because priests were still having kids. And the second unarguable truth, when I said London was run by a series of oligarchs whose nepotism had allowed them grow in power, this also applied to the local London church. Because the de Belmius family, or should I say the de Belmius dynasty, were easily the London oligarchical power over the church in this era. St. Paul's was this family's yard. Consider the following. The new bishop, when he took the office, 
had working under him his cousin, Ralph de Langford, who was the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, and he'd taken the job after their other cousin, William D. Marini, had died recently, back in 1138. These three men's uncle had been Bishop Richard I, and he had had two sons, the younger one called Walter de Belmias, who was a canon of St. Paul's Cathedral and a prebendary officer of the church up in Newington, and an older son called William de Belmias, who was the Archdeacon of London, a significant post under the bishop, as the Archdeaconry was in charge of the entire eastern part of the diocese of London and Westminster, like the region from Port Soken onwards. It would be said that William D. Belmias died around 1152 and his successor as Archdeacon was either the son or brother of William de Marini, a man called Hugh de Marini, another cousin. Think we're done? <laughs> we're not even close. While Bishop Richard had taken the title of Bishop London, his older brother Robert had died, but his son William de Belmias II became a canon of St. Paul's Cathedral and a prebendary officer of the church in St. Pancreas. Bishop Richard's younger brother had become the lord of a small village of Tong in Shropshire, and eventually his family line married into the de la Zouche dynasty. But Bishop Richard's youngest brother seems to have been an illegitimate sign of his father, also called Richard, or Richard Rufus, who was Archdeacon of nearby Essex, and his two sons would go on to become canons of St. Paul's Cathedral. Running St. Paul's? That was a family affair, it seems. And the dynasty of Bishop Richard del Bilmias II was to be a powerful and strong force in and around this era, all the way until the end of the century. Anyway, let's round up all this church stuff. The king's inept and brutal handling of his own affairs with the church had left him politically weakened, and many thinking that the aging king may be able to hold his own on the battlefield, but was unable to hold his own politically, and this, this was to have a profound effect upon the Anarchy. Enough then. For too long this matter has dominated the story of London, and so I'll bring it to its messy conclusion now. Because this strange civil war was to reach a most profound ending that was to change the nature of the city in the decades and centuries to come. By 1153 then, young Henry of Anjou, this child of the anarchy, seems suddenly blessed by the chaos around him. His father, Geoffrey of Anjou, died, and 20-year-old Henry was now not only Count of Anjou, but he was now Duke of Normandy. Flushed by this, in 1153 he launched another invasion from Normandy. I know historians always make out that the 1066 invasion of England was the invasion but if the story of London has done anything by now, I hope it has impressed upon you, dear listener, that really, invasions were commonplace during this era. This particular invasion was paltry in size compared to the conquerors, being supposedly only 36 ships large and comprising of 140 knights and horses and around 3,000 men. It was not a force able to change the course of the war, 
Henry's army was only enough to get him a seat at the table. The forces of Stephen were more than able to match and crush such a force. So why did Henry of Anjou commit? Well, it wasn't just the hand he was playing with now that mattered. By now, Henry of Anjou had behind him massive political momentum. In the 1140s, Henry had been a young teenage chancer, fighting over a half-legal claim that his mother hadn't really been able to enforce. And now, now Henry owned Anjou. He had inherited Normandy of his father, but in 1152, Henry had gotten married, and oh boy, what a marriage that was. Remember how I mentioned last chapter? Eleanor, the Queen of France, had gone on crusade with her husband, King Louis VII, and their relationship was now on the rocks. Well, I wasn't kidding. They had returned, and King Louis had used his influence to end their marriage. But Eleanor was vibrant, sexy, and now the most eligible woman on the continent. She was Duchess of Aquitaine in her own right. She had vast tracts of land. And she appears to have rather liked the look of this dashing and bold young Count of Anjou. And so they had married. And by the time Henry stepped off that boat onto English soil in 1153, he ruled Anjou, Normandy, and could claim as husband of the Duchess of Aquitaine the entire east coast of France, basically. He ruled more of France than the King of France. He wasn't a chancer anymore. He was an A-list power, now arriving to stake a claim for the title of King of England. Stephen knew he was in danger, and so he marshaled his forces quickly. It should be said he now had a new ally in the form of King Louis of France, because his Royal Highness was now frickin' livid at his ex-wife doing what she'd just done, and now he had to cope with Henry of Anjou being technically more powerful in terms of real politique than him. But the anarchy was to be resolved on the soil of England, no matter how the King of France felt. Stephen almost caught Henry. As Louis VII attacked Normandy, Stephen had come close to capturing his rival in Malmesbury, but as Henry escaped, a ferocious rainstorm forced Stephen to call off the pursuit and return to London, brooding and furious. The English weather had magically saved Henry, yet the culmination of this war was still to come. Stephen marched out again towards Henry's flagship castle at Wallingford, and the men of London, stalwart supporters still, had marched with him. The fighting promised to be decisive. Stephen's forces took the bridge over the Thames and built a counter-castle to besiege the castle of Henry's men. But then Henry himself turned up and launched an attack upon the counter-castle. His men stormed the outer walls and were attacking its inner sanctum, but a large body of Londoners had laid in wait hiding within the outer sanctum and ambushed Henry's men. Henry was able to inflict strong losses, but Eustace and Stephen again simply held the military advantage. Now the two sides and their supporters drew up forces to face each other for what appeared to be the final battle in this 13-year-long war, but it never happened. The nobles of England on both sides simply did not want to do it. 
there was a sense that they were sick of the endless killings, sick of the losses, sick of this war. To the fury of both leaders, it is said, diplomatic relations began. And while Stephen was always able to maintain control over the battlefields, Henry was by far the better diplomat. In Winchester, peace talks began to discuss a negotiatal settlement to this seemingly never-ending war. The great and the good of England came together to create the peace. And during those discussions, there is for me a significant moment. It is said that during the talks, it was reported that the body of nobles said the following, quote, We have dispatched messengers for the Londoners, who, from the importance of their city in England, are almost nobles, as it were, to meet us on this business, and have sent them a safe conduct, unquote. Almost nobles. The term screams of the power of the city. Here is how London was seen by the other powers of the land. Almost nobles. Not talking about primogenitor of birth and bloodline, but the real politic sense of the power of this community. This phrase is almost as significant as what was said the next day. See, the delegation of Londoners had arrived, saying they had been sent, quote, a communoni quam vocant London erium, unquote, from the commune of London. London stood proud, a commune. It stood as an equal in terms of power of these landlords here, they would have a say in these peace talks. They would have agency in this solution. And what solution would there be? Well, from a London point of view, they had sworn oaths to King Stephen. Hell, they had picked Stephen to be the king. They would not turn on him or betray him. London would stand by Stephen until his dying day. But, um, well, to, to be honest, uh, they never made any such promise to Prince Eustace. Now you come to mention it, did we, boys? The conclusion of the peace talks was the Treaty of Winchester, wherein it was declared that Stephen would remain the anointed king over England until the day of his death, and that upon his death, Henry of Anjou would be proclaimed king by all, and henceforth be recognised as successor to the throne. And with that, the anarchy ended. Not with a bang, but with a studied sigh of relief. Of course, Prince Eustace did not agree to this agreement. He stormed off. And the settlement has led many historians to question why, given everything, did Stephen agree to this? I could talk about the many postulations put forward by excellent historians. And really, it is a fascinating debate. But in truth for me, the simplest solution would be simply that King Stephen agreed to go along with this plan for now. There is no indication that he ever intended to hold to it. 
It just seems that he would agree to this, regroup his forces and maybe try to negotiate a new deal at a later date after a later military campaign. But his problem was fate does seem to be working against him. His wife, Matilda, long stalwart and support for him, died in 1152 and, and Prince Eustace died soon after Henry was declared heir. The sense that the English nobles were sick of this war was added to by the fact that on paper it looked like the next king along, he was as powerful as hell, and they all realised they needed to get their acts together. I could spend long minutes describing how the Treaty of Winchester was followed up by a score of smaller treaties and agreements between lords and nobles across this nation as Hatchets were buried quietly, and vendettas were gently ended. Very few nobles ever lost anything from the settlement. Henry played it very smart, and no one wanted to renew the conflict. And so, broken in heart and spirit, King Stephen ended up accepting the deal. Still being a vigorous and powerful monarch as best he could, but his heart was not in it. And in 1154 he passed, and an era ended, and a new era begun. King Henry II, the founder of the Plantagenet dynasty, was now King of England. And this realm would never be the same again. And London? London escaped it all, it seems, with only one loss. To be part of this new regime, they just had to sacrifice one thing upon the altar of pragmatism. The status of commune was removed, and a new charter was issued for London, similar to the one Henry's mother, Matilda, had wanted to install. With her, London had rang its bells and risen up in bloody rebellion. With Henry... They had accepted the new status quo. The commune of London was dead, and the almost nobles realised, as their ancestors had done in times past, that with some kings you dug your heels in and exercised your rights for the city to pick its own kings, and with other kings... You put your head down and quietly just got back to making cash? And now was just such a moment, and London embraced the new peace without argument. Yet those thirteen years had started a fire in the city, one that burned below the soil like a heath fire on a warm August day with only a few tendrils of smoke indicating its spread. But that fire had been lit, and it was going to erupt suddenly in the years to come. Thank you for listening. I do so hope you enjoyed that episode. That's the end of the anarchy. Whew, we made it. Coming up, the first Plantagenet, as we start the reign of Henry II. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did like it, please leave a positive review or a five-star rating 
or if you're really generous, you can help out the continued maintenance of this podcast by donating on the Buy Me A Coffee page. I am aware that when you're listening to this, I am weeks behind in updating the scripts that I post for people to read along. I'm terribly sorry about this. Life has just been eating up my time, and I've been rather remiss in this duty. It is my endeavour within the next few weeks to try and catch up on this. I keep saying that. Maybe I'll actually get round to doing it. Thanks once again. I'll see you next week as we move into a new era of the story of London. <laughs>